Well, you don't need that, yeah. <laughs> okay. I love you. Um, so, I want to start by looking at where we are. Uh, we're in the book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 3 today for one of probably the most famous uh, stories from the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, so a friend of, uh, of ours found out I was preaching this week and asked me, um, told him we were in the, uh, the book of Daniel. And he goes, oh, what are, you, what are you preaching on, the fire or the lions? Because it's really the two stories that everybody knows from, um, from Daniel. Uh, so, in case you didn't know, we'll be in the fiery furnace today. Um, and you, unfortunately, you're getting like the C team. I'm sure Josh could have done a lot better job, and I know Mary and Judy can, so uh, so if I blow it, we can just ask them to do it again next week. Um, so, in case anybody's missed the last couple of Sundays, or if you're like me, and last Sunday feels like it was a year ago, um, I think we're going to do a quick recap. And I said we'll do a quick recap, but we're actually going to go all the way back to Genesis 1 uh, and try to do the whole Bible up until the book of Daniel uh, fairly quickly. Um, I've kind of talked fast, so it'll probably work out. Okay, so in the beginning, Yahweh creates the heavens and the earth. Um, a serpent comes and deceives man. Mankind rebels because of that deception and because of his heart. But um, God, right after that, Yahweh promises a serpent crusher um, to come from the woman. Uh, mankind keeps rebelling, unfortunately, and pretty much declares that they are on team serpent and not team God. Uh, Yahweh selects this guy named Abraham to be the guy that the serpent crusher will come from. Uh, Yahweh rescues Abraham's great, 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 great grandchildren, um, who are now referred to as Israel from a wicked, evil king in Egypt. So hopefully if you were here, you've done Josh's homework and watched the Prince of Egypt. Um, if not do that. Uh, so He rescues Abraham's great-grandchildren out of Egypt, and he enters into covenant with them, which, if you don't really know what covenant is, it's kind of an old-timey word, but it really is kind of like a marriage agreement. So he marries Abraham's great-grandchildren on Mount Sinai in a really cool, fiery, mountain, terrifying um, ceremony. But, um, and he re-ups the promise that he made to Abraham, like 500 years before, that this serpent crusher would come from from Abraham and, and that they would have a place on earth and, and God would dwell with his people. Um, generations later, Yahweh promises King David that the serpent crusher will be one of his descendants. So he's kind of honing in and that that his descendants kingdom will last forever, which is uh, awesome. Uh, awesome news. Um, so long story short, most of David's descendants seem to be on team serpent, just like the rest of uh Mankind, um, and they lead the nation to break the covenant, the marriage covenant, the marriage agreement, mainly by worshiping other gods. You can think of like adultery or infidelity. And because of this, Yahweh raises up empires, um, namely Assyria and Babylon, to discipline Israel, to kind of tell them that they've messed up and bring them back. Uh, So these wicked serpent worshiping empires carry the people of Israel out of the land that they're promised. um, And it's done by Yahweh. So he raises up these empires to discipline his people and take them into exile. 
And this all happens in accordance with the covenant um, that God made with Israel way back on Mount Sinai um, with Moses. And if you don't believe me, you can go read Deuteronomy 28 through 32. Um, And if you do believe me, you should also go read Deuteronomy 28 through 32. So I guess what I'm saying is your homework this week is to read Deuteronomy 28 through 32. Okay? It won't be as musically entertaining as Josh's homework, but it will be edifying. So, um, All right, so Israel is being disciplined by God. They're in exile in wicked Babylon. Um, and this is where we pick the story up of Daniel and some other young Jewish boys uh, who get named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, those aren't their Hebrew names, but those are probably the names that, if you know this story, the names that you recognize. Um and these Daniel and his, his boys are sent to basically Babylonian college to learn all things Babylon. Um, <laughs> just like American college. Uh, yeah, so they're sent into college by King Nebuchadnezzar to become his servants. Um, these Jewish boys definitely know Deuteronomy by heart because what Sean read, Deuteronomy 11. Okay, they've been talking about it at the dinner table. As they go, as they walk to and fro. Um, they know Deuteronomy by, know, by heart. They know that God promises to redeem his people when they repent and turn back to him. They understand the covenant discipline thing. And so these guys set their minds to obedience and faithfulness to Yahweh. That's Daniel 1. Um, they're in college and they're being faithful to Yahweh. Then in Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a, this weird statue made of all these different materials. And it gets crushed by this divinely carved out rock. Um, And because of these Jewish boys' faithfulness and obedience, God grants Daniel the ability to uh, interpret the king's dream or to know the king's dream, um, which Josh summed up last week, if you were here. And it goes like this. God's kingdom will crush all other kingdoms and it will endure forever. So if that's all you got out of last week and this week, then we did our job. Um, and this is nothing new to Daniel and his boys. They probably went over this in Hebrew school or Hebrew boys school 101. Uh, God's kingdom will crush all other kingdoms. Um, so in Daniel 2, or yeah, in Daniel 2, Daniel essentially gets to give this wicked serpent worshiping king a crash course in God's plan and story and lets him know where history is headed. Okay, so that gets us to Daniel 3. Don't forget to do your homework. Um, And now we're in Daniel 3. So Daniel 3, we pick up. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth breadth 6 cubits. He set set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, so right away it's looking like King Nebuchadnezzar didn't really get it. (laughs) He's like, cool, statue, I guess I should make one, right? Um, so to go back real quick into the, the dream, um, there's the head of the statue is, is made of gold and Daniel interprets it and says the, the head of gold, gold is you King Nebuchadnezzar. And it represents the authority that, that Yahweh has given you, um, over the peoples of the earth, which seems pretty cool. Like I might make a statue if I got that, except for he didn't like keep listening to Daniel, I guess, because that statue gets crushed by the rock. So I don't, so I don't know why would Nebuchadnezzar would go and build a full golden uh, statue out of it. Um, I actually do know why he would, because he's prideful, selfish, wicked king, and he's living for this age and really doesn't know any better. Yeah, he heard the story, but 
um, in one ear and out the other, you could say. So, at the end of chapter 2, he honors Daniel's God, but kind of only with lip service. Um, I think he only does it because he thinks this Hebrew God can, like, serve him somehow. He can give Daniel revelation and, like, help him out. That's kind of how idolaters work. They, they worship this idol to get something from it. Um, rain or whatever. Um, so, that's kind of where we're at. So this statue, it's kind of a weird description. If you look at it in like a, a kid's Bible or something, it's probably a huge image of King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't really, it's really tall and skinny if you think about it. It's ten times taller than it is like wide. So it might just be like a, a more of like an Egyptian obelisk or something. We don't really know what it looks like. It might have a big pedestal and then a statue on top. Um, but what we do know is it's really tall. It's made of gold or at least... Looks gold on the outside. You can see it from everywhere. Um, and it represents this kind of wicked king, his kingdom, his gods, and that. All right, so verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So who's called to this dedication? Um, it's all the civil, military, judicial, religious authorities from across the empire. Um, some scholars believe this, this whole thing might have occurred because Nebuchadnezzar finally had conquered all of the land that he had kind of set out to do. So he's consolidating his reign. He's bringing all these conquered peoples in and, and making them bow down to him. Um, another one I read was there was some sort of rebellion and it's been crushed. And this is kind of like Nebuchadnezzar's way of letting people back into the fold and, and pledge their loyalty to, to him and his gods. Um, either way, it seems to be him consolidating power, um, a type of loyalty pledge to worship the gods of Babylon before all other gods. And through this, also pledge loyalty to King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, later on, when we get further in, you'll notice that Daniel doesn't really show up in chapter 3. Uh, kind of weird we don't really know where he is um something i read was he's kind of serving in the royal court so he's really close to the king so he wouldn't have been part of the rebellion um he might not have to pledge loyalty because nebuchadnezzar doesn't really worry about daniel we don't really know the the text is kind of silent on that but um i don't think he bowed down let's put it that way so all right verse three the satraps the prefects the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So everyone who's called showed up. And uh, talk about power and authority, but if you've ever been in charge of something and you've asked people to show up on time and where they're supposed to be, you know that he actually has uh, some clout here. Because <laughs> they all show up. So, verse 4 uh, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So we have a problem. If you've ever read or heard any Bible um, at the end of chapter 2, Daniel gets a big promotion for revealing the king's dream. 
And as part of that promotion, he gets his Jewish colleagues, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, appointed as administrators over the provinces of Babylon. So these Jewish guys are there. They're at the statue. And I know Exodus 20, verse 5, is running through their heads. It's probably running through a bunch of your heads right now. Even if you don't know what it is, it's the second commandment. Exodus 25, you must not bow down to them or worship them. And the them in this is idols. Uh, so the stage is set. What are these guys going to do? Are they going to refrain or remain faithful and obedient and risk death? Or are they going to bow and save their lives in this age? So we're kind of sitting here waiting. Most of you probably know what, what happens, but we'll, we'll read on just to make sure. Therefore, as soon as all these people heard the sound of the instruments um, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the instruments and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. I guess they thought he forgot what he had said. I don't know. There are certain Jews among you who have appointed, you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the instruments, the sound of the music, fall down and worship the image that I have made, all will be well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He just had to put the last sentence in there. He couldn't just... Um, all right, so the boys didn't bow down, evidently. Um, they remained faithful. They passed that, that test. But now they're being marched before the king. And maybe before they were just hoping that no one would notice, you know. Um, maybe the fact that they would be lost in the crowd gave them courage to, to not bow down before. Maybe they were hoping that with the multitudes of people present and everyone face down and worshiping the instruments and the instruments that three young Jewish men wouldn't be noticed. Well, that's not an option anymore. They're standing in front of the king. His gaze and rage is focused on them and them alone. And he's demanding that they bow and worship, demanding that they turn their back on their God. Josh always talks about how eschatology um, drives discipleship. Eschatology is a big word for the end of the story. Um, so how knowing what happens in the end drives how you behave and walk now. Um, well, this next part, the three young Jewish boys response in the next few verses is like, one of the clearest prime examples of them knowing the story, helping them walk the walk. Um, so these guys know the promises of Yahweh. 
they know about the promised snake crusher from Genesis 3. They know how Abraham proved himself faithful when he didn't withhold his son Isaac, even though all the promises to Abraham were through Isaac. So if he kills Isaac, how's God going to do it? He trusted God that God would somehow make it happen. Um, they know about the Exodus. Uh, they know the kingdom of God will crush the kingdoms of this age eventually. Even though they're in exile right now, they know the story. Um, they know the end of the story, more importantly. They know Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If Paul were writing to encourage these boys, I think it would go something like Romans thirteen twelve. The night, kind of a euphemism for this present evil age, the age of wicked Gentile kings who throw people in furnaces, is almost gone. And the day of Christ's return and his eternal kingdom is almost here. So let us fling away the works of darkness and put on the full armor of light. Live as in the daytime. Um, the night is far gone. So these Jewish boys understand the covenant. They understand they're under discipline right now. They understand that God has temporarily raised up this seemingly insurmountable king and empire and that they might be killed but they know that even if they are killed, it won't be the end of the story. Uh, there's a rock coming to crush the kingdoms of this age. And Abraham's going to be there, even though he's dead right now. Moses is going to be there, even though he's dead right now. David's going to be there, even though he's dead right now. And if they stay faithful, they'll be there too. They know the end of the story so they can stand in the fire. So this is their response. And this is, I think, the kind of the the meat of this passage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. They're like, don't even bother with the music. Right? Please, no more liars. Or what, I don't know what a liar sounds like. but If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But even if he does not. You see, they don't doubt that Yahweh is capable of rescuing them out of the furnace. He's the creator of the universe. He split the sea and let the Israelites walk on dry land. They know he can rescue them. And I'm guessing they really, really want him to. As they see flames billow out of this brick kiln thing. Um, but the point here is that their obedience and faith doesn't depend on them being saved out of the fire. Their response isn't, God, if you keep us out of the fire, we will be faithful. And I know I've prayed that one before. Um, but I don't think that's the right one. No, their response is, God, we will be faithful even in the midst of the fire. They know God has promised to crush the serpent, redeem Israel, and establish their kingdom forever. And so they're going to remain faithful even in the face of death. They know the end of the story so they can walk through the fire. Um, and here's a little bit of a spoiler, but God does rescue them out of the furnace, if you didn't know. If you haven't heard the story. Um, 
I urge you to read the rest of chapter 3. It's awesome. And I don't use that word lightly. The three of them are thrown into this furnace. And it's so hot that the guys that threw them in die instantly. Like it's crazy. And then miraculously, there's this fourth guy in the furnace with them. Um, I tried to kind of research and get a handle. um, But I think I'm just going to punt on who the fourth guy is. Uh, (laughs) It might be just an angel. It might be like one of the angels like Gabriel or Michael. Um, It might be a pre-incarnate Christ. I really don't know. I'm open to anybody's suggestions. So, um, but what I do know is that they walk out of the furnace unhurt, unsinged. They don't even smell like smoke. Um, so praise God. I love that we serve a God that isn't far off. He's not distant. He's not quiet. Um, he doesn't just let us walk in silence. Um, no, we serve a God that is with us in the furnace that walks through the fire with us that shows up, performs miracles that shows up and and hangs on a cross for us. Um, that's the God that we serve. Um, I love it. I ask for miracles every day. But I don't want to miss the words that the boys spoke and what I think is the main point of this passage. But even if he does not, the boys were determined to remain faithful and obedient in the midst of trials, of exile, of the destruction of their homes, of being ripped out of their homeland, even under threat of the fiery furnace of pain and suffering and death. Looking at the current state of affairs around them, this huge empire, flames billowing out of this brick kiln, of this smelting furnace, whatever it was used for, I think the boys might have probably had every reason to believe that God might have turned his face away from them, that he might have abandoned them, but they don't. They trust that the Lord is faithful to his promises, and they stay on the path. They keep the faith. They don't fold. They don't give in. I think that is what this story is meant to do. It's meant to strengthen the followers of Yahweh and the followers of his appointed Messiah to stay on the path, to know the end of the story so that they can remain faithful and endure, so they can persevere. Um, Daniel's kind of one of those big books that kind of gets broken up, but I think it's kind of one big prophetic book, honestly, and it's it's meant to be talked about and to get us thinking about the, the end of the story and to strengthen us while we do in the midst of uh, craziness. Um, I think that's why Jesus talks about it um, with his disciples, which is kind of why we're in Daniel. We got to Matthew 24, uh, the Olivet Discourse. We'll probably get back there sometime in 2020. Six, who knows? No. Um, but I think that's the main point of this book is to, to kind of gird you up. Um, and all throughout Acts, when Jesus' disciples are beaten, they're jailed, they're stoned, they're exiled onto islands, they're hauled before governors and kings, they're crucified, um, they're beheaded, they're thrown off buildings, they're shipwrecked. I think the disciples were strengthened by the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remaining faithful and remaining obedient. I think it's a story that came to their minds in the darkness of prison. Um, If Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny can stay faithful, we can too. I think this story, along with the example of Jesus remaining faithful unto death, inspired Peter when he was writing his letters. Um, First Peter, little section, but really all of first and second Peter, but... uh, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Dear friends, 
Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. As if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. uh, So that you may also... That's a weird statement. Rejoice in the sufferings that you share with Christ. But it's not that crazy if you know the end of the story. Um, So that you might also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed... At the end of the age, on the day of the Lord. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a follower of Messiah, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So just to pull a couple out there. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. Sounds like a callback to fiery furnace. Uh, And let those who suffer in this age entrust themselves to the faithful creator while doing what is good, um, that passage just stuck out to me when I was kind of pondering this week. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I don't really know how to end this, so we'll, we'll go with it. I don't have a nice little neat bow to put on the story or on the sermon. I thought about tying in the worship of the beast in Revelation, because if you've read Revelation, you can't really read Revelation without Daniel. So there's definitely uh, something there. Uh, I think there's, um, yeah, a parallel, but really all I wanted to do today was to encourage all of you to keep running the race, to endure, to persevere, to cry out for help and for miracles and to keep trusting God, no matter the outcome in this age. Um, we probably won't face a fiery furnace. We probably won't stand before a king or judge and be faced with the choice of bow or burn, um, We might, I don't know, but I do know what we will face, what we have faced. We're going to be ridiculed for our beliefs. Um, We're going to be laughed at by those who don't believe. We're going to lose friends for what we profess. We're going to deal with sickness, pain, and suffering in this age of darkness. We're going to deal with bodies and minds that break down and hurt and don't work like God designed. Um... We're going to be faced with friends, spouses, parents, children that die. Um, We have to have a clear vision. Sorry. We have to have a clear vision of the future. Uh, We have to know the end of the story. You got to wake up and look forward to the day when the Son of Man splits the sky and we get new bodies. And we see our loved ones rising up to everlasting life. I look around the room and see members of this church walking this out in real time. This age is beaten, punched, and kicked, and knocked them down again and again, but they hold on. They cling to the hope that we have in Christ. They know that there's an empty tomb over there outside Jerusalem. 
And one day there will be empty tombs all over this place too. Um, the kingdom of God is going to crush the kingdoms of the earth and it will last forever. Uh, Josh said I couldn't read Isaiah 25 anymore, so I'll read Revelation 21 instead. <laughs> then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with man and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will exist no longer. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Which I think is the same thing that Daniel got. Write this down. Um, My people are going to need it. Uh, You'll come help me. Um, So if... If some of that was new, if the story, if the end is new, if you don't know what the end looks like, um, get with someone. uh, We'll tell you the story. Um, Anyone, a member of this church, come talk to me. I'll tell you the story. I'll tell you about a a man uh, who died for your sins so that you could live forever. Um, And if you haven't put your... Faith in him, if you don't know the name of Jesus or trust um, that he'll wash you white as snow, again, come talk to someone, grab someone. Um, So, that's it. Please join me in prayer. Uh, Father, uh, just thank you for your word that um, we're we're not uh, blind Gentiles groping in the darkness, even though we are, but... Um, thank you for, for your word that it's been handed down somehow and got to Tonkawa, um, Oklahoma. We thank you that, that we know the end of the story. We ask for your spirit's help to, um, just put it on our hearts, uh, that, that you win, that you are in control of everything, that, that you raise, um, authorities and powers up on the earth, um, that we'll walk through trials that that we won't be immune from suffering, for, from pain, or from death um, in this age. But there is coming a day when all that stuff is gone um, forever, and and a, and a rock crushes the kingdoms of the earth, and the people don't bow down to a golden image, but they bow down to the one who was pierced uh, for their sins. Uh, We thank you that you are faithful and that you are steadfast when we are not um, and that you are patient with us and allow us to repent and to turn back to you and that when we do, you're there with open arms. Um, We love you. We thank you that the sun rose today and that we got to gather together and encourage one another. Um, Amen. Yeah, if we get the elders come up, um, we're going to move into a time of kind of prayer. You can come up and pray with a, uh, an elder if you want to or feel like you need to, or you pray with someone else, pray by yourself in your in your seat. But we do ask that you um, don't kind of disengage, but that you um, pray uh, in, in some manner. <laughs>